Again, glad you all are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. So we left off last week. God has rejected Saul as king. He gave very clear direction to Saul through Samuel. Saul was partially obedient, which is the same thing as being completely disobedient. And so God rejects him. God rejects him. There's this word that we looked at, Naham. God regretted that he made Saul the king. And so Saul has moved on to someone who's a better man, to a, excuse me, to a man after his own heart. But Saul will continue to reign. He'll just do so without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so God, the big thing that we looked at was this whole idea of does God change? Because in that passage, we read twice that God regretted that he made Saul king. And we also read twice that God doesn't change his mind. So how do both of those things fit together? And we talked about God being a rock in terms of his nature and his character. He, he's always holy. He's always just. He's always loving. He's always omnipotent. He's always eternal. But when it comes to the way he relates to us, he's a father. He's allowed himself to be influenced by the prayer and the actions of his people. And so his character never changes. But he's constantly uh, changing the expression of that character to us based on our responsiveness to him. And that's what we talked about last week. That's a big concept. It takes a while to chew on that. Uh, But this week is a bit of a palate cleanser. Next week, we're going to see why God would send an evil spirit to torment Saul. So that'll be fun. Um, We may do open mic next week and see what everybody's ideas are. This week, again, it's a a straightforward passage. We're introduced to David, uh, who is the man after God's own heart, who will take the place of Saul. And the rest of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel centers around him. So uh, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you are to do. You're to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So we have this instructions to Samuel. We close chapter 15 with Samuel mourning for Saul. And we open chapter 16 the same way. Samuel is still mourning for Saul. And God says, it's, we're not looking back anymore. We're looking at Bethlehem. One of his sons is the one who's going to take Saul's place. So I want you to go and anoint him. Just like you anointed Saul, you're going to anoint this one who I've chosen to replace him. And Samuel says, what about Saul? So Samuel's in Ramah. There's a picture there, a map there up on the screen. In order to get to Bethlehem, that's that bottom purple little marker, he's got to go through Gibeah. The road goes through Gibeah, and that's where Saul lives. So there's no way to get from Ramah to Bethlehem without going by Saul's house. Samuel can't leave his house and get to Jesse's house without passing by Saul's house. And we saw last week, Saul has become desperate. He's intent on hanging on to control. When he finally admits that he has sinned, his response is not repentance, it's not contrition, it's not a desire to be reconciled to God. It's saying, Samuel, I need you to publicly back me. I don't want people to know that God has rejected me. He's so desperate, he actually lunges for Samuel and grabs on to his robe. He desperately wants to hang on to power. His ego is running out of control. He's made a monument to himself. And Samuel says, what's he going to do? I'm the kingmaker. He knows he's been rejected. He's going to want to know where I'm going. He may try to kill me. He may try to kill the one who God, who you're picking 
to be his replacement, thinking somehow that will allow him to hang on to the throne. And what God says to him, this is a great picture uh, of Jesus's instruction to be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. What do you do in a hostile situation? What God says is just tell him this, take a cow and then uh, you're offering a sacrifice, which is true. It's not the whole truth. But it's true. That's gives that idea of being shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. That way Saul doesn't get set off and he doesn't start killing people. He doesn't wreak havoc. So Samuel says, "Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Verse four. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? He replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So Samuel appears in Bethlehem. The people are nervous. Bethlehem is not part of his normal circuit. It would be like uh, if your boss's boss suddenly drops it in your office tomorrow, you're probably wondering why he's there. And they are there. They don't. Why, why are you here? Are, are you do we do anything wrong? And they, Samuel says, no, I'm here to offer this sacrifice. Y'all clean up. You need to get ritually clean in order to participate in this. And he invites Jesse and his sons to this uh, to this sacrifice. So Jesse comes, doesn't know why he's just been invited. And he comes and his seven oldest sons all come. And when Samuel sees the firstborn, Eliab, he says, that's got to be the guy. He's tall. He's attractive, very much like Saul was. He looks the part of a king. Now, at this point, Samuel is flying blind. God has said it's one of the sons of Jesse, but he doesn't know which one. And so he's just going based on what he can see with his eyes. And what he sees is that guy looks like a king. And he's the firstborn, and those are the types of privileges that firstborn sons have. And so he's thinking, this is it. And God speaks to him and says, no, don't, no, don't look at his height. Don't look at his appearance. This classic verse that we see here in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at external appearances, and God looks at the heart. So Samuel gets it at that point. Okay, it's not about what they look like. And Jesse has six more of his sons pass by, and every one of them... God says, no, that's not it. And so Samuel at that point is maybe a bit confused. God has said, come to Bethlehem. It's one of Jesse's sons. Jesse's brought out seven sons and it's none of them. So he says, are there any more? Are there any sons we don't know about? And Jesse says, yes, there is one, the youngest. Go get him. Some people see in that maybe Jesse uh, having something negative towards David. I wouldn't. It seems to me that this... Samuel uh, shows up in Bethlehem unannounced. It's a spur of the moment thing. 
Jesse and his sons are invited. I don't know how far away the sheep pasture is, and they just leave David out there. I don't think that he's intentionally leaving him out. He doesn't know why he's been invited to the feast in the first place. You know, some people read in your Bible may say David was ruddy, which, you know, that, that can mean tan or, um, red hair and people do the kind of the redheaded stepchild. That's American idiom. That's not Hebrew. Some people see David as illegitimate. I don't. That's your, it's a huge stretch at that point. There's no paternity tests. You don't know who the father is. So if Jesse's the kind of guy who's taken in a child who's illegitimate, then he's probably the kind of guy who's going to bring him along to the festival as well. He's either embarrassed about him or he's not. So to me, all of those things are a stretch. I think it's just simply Samuel shows up unannounced. Jesse gets the kids who are in the house and they go to the feast. And David, I don't even think it's that he's an afterthought or forgotten. He's just not there. And then they go get David and they bring him. And and when uh, when Samuel sees David, he says, that's that's the one. The Lord confirms for him that's the one he anoints and the oil that he brought, he pours on his head. And remember, that's a symbol of being set apart for something. We don't know what. It doesn't say what at this point. We know. David doesn't know. His brothers don't know. We just know they know he's been set apart for something. And it's also a symbol of being empowered to do something. So whatever God has set you apart for, he also empowers you to do. It's an external sign. And then we see the Holy Spirit Coming upon David, that's the the true fulfillment or the true empowering to accomplish whatever it is God will have David do. David's probably 15 at this point, somewhere around there. It'll be 15 years before he is ruling in any part, and that's Judah. He's ruling a portion of Israel in 15 years. So there's a a long gap there where God is maturing and refining uh, David's character and preparing him. To lead. So, again, pretty straightforward story there. It's our first introduction to David. We'll have several other introductions. He's introduced about three different ways, and this is the first one, again, the most straightforward, where he's anointed out of the fields um, to be the one that he's this man after God's own heart, this better man than Saul, even as a teenager. So, for us, again, the, the money verse is chapter, or excuse me, is verse 7. God doesn't look at the same at the heart. We're going to look at both of those phrases. Um, as we wrap up this morning, we look at appearances. And so I think we need to own that. People look at external appearances and we're people. So that means we do that. I don't know that we should necessarily see that as a word of judgment from the Lord as much as it's a statement of fact. He's just saying that's how people are. Uh, practically, you can't see someone's heart anyway. All you can see is their outsides. We can't look inside People, uh, heart biblically is the center of someone's personality. It's the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotions. We can't see any of that. Half the time, we can't even understand our own heart, much less see into someone else's. We see external. Samuel, someone who's as dialed into the Lord as anybody in the Bible, he does it. He looks at Eliab and says, that's got to be the guy. He looks like a king. If someone like him can do that, then of course we can't. Science kind of backs it. There's this thing. It's called the what is beautiful is good stereotype. Y'all ever heard of that? So we tend to project greatness on pretty people. So whatever the standards of beauty are in your culture, people, men and women, children and adults across races, ethnicities and religions. And this is true across the board. When we see someone who, according to our standards, is beautiful, then we assume that person is smarter, kinder, more generous and more trustworthy than they probably are. 
without any basis in fact other than looking at a picture. People routinely ascribe those kind of qualities to people who are pretty. Again, psychologists have been studying this for almost 60 years. What is beautiful is good stereotype. The Bible says we judge by appearances. And psychology says, yeah, we judge by appearances. And so we need to own that. That sounds shallow. We think we grew out of that when we went from middle school to high school. And we look at people's hearts and we judge people based on their character and what they do. And we don't. We don't. Pretty people, beautiful people, that's what we tend to look at and we gravitate towards. People who aren't as pretty or aren't as beautiful, we, there's some things that we maybe fill in the blanks there. We tend to judge based on appearances. At a minimum, we're tempted to do the same. And we want to be aware of that and just recognize our own fallibility there. Life is about relationships and you can see how you can get tripped up really quickly. If you're making decisions about people based on externals that have nothing to do with their character. And if life is about relationships, all relationships are inherently risky. This is not about risk proofing your life. You can't do that. There's a quote there from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves. The only way to avoid pain is to avoid people. That's it. The only way to avoid relational pain is to not love anyone. And the more significantly you're connected to somebody, the greater the potential they have to hurt you. 100%. You know that. There are no guarantees. But if we know this about ourselves, that we tend to judge people based on their externals, if we know that about ourselves, at a minimum, I would say pray. We need to bring God into the mix. Dating, engagement, marriage. You need to be asking the Lord. He sees things that you don't see. Partnership. Many of you are in business. Do you even ask the Lord who you need to partner with, who you need to go into business with in terms of even clients? Are you asking the Lord? Is there, is, you, you can see things that I can't see about this person. Some of you are in positions where you hire, whether it's for a secular company or a Christian organization. You can still ask the Lord, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything I need to know? Y'all know interviews are the worst predictor of productivity anyway. But even beneath that, we're all, we're we're drawn to externals. Are you asking the Lord, is there anything that I can't see that I need to see? The, one of the, a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12 is, is discernment. It's this idea to know the source, to supernaturally know the source of something, if it's good or if it's not, if it's from the Lord or the flesh or from the enemy. You may not be able to write a paper on somebody and say, this is, this is all the things I know. But sometimes there's just a sense. Uh, you may call it an intuition or a feeling. Very well could be the Holy Spirit. I would say, pay attention to that. We judge based on outsides. That gets us in trouble because people live out of their hearts. That's Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart because all of life flows from it. And God's the only one that can see the heart. He's it. And so we need to be asking him. The more significant the relationship is, the more you need to be asking him. And it's not about trying to uncover people at all. It's just saying, God, are there things where we're not going to click? This isn't going to work out. It's not saying anyone else is wicked at all. It's not saying they're worse than you at all. It's just saying, God, you know me. And you know the kind of people I mesh well with. Is this something I need to engage in? Is this someone I need to date? Is it? 
Is this a partner that I need to take on? Is this a significant business relationship that I need to enter into? And I may be desperate for the significant business relationship. And God may very well say, keep moving. Is this someone I need to hire? They've got, it looks like, they look great on paper. But you know our culture. And you know me. Is this someone who we need to to bring on to the team? Are you asking him about those significant relationships? Recognize the tendency that we all have to see what we want to see when we look at somebody. And just like we tend to judge people based on externals, people judge us the same way. And you just need to know that. There's nothing you can do about it. You You don't need to wear more makeup or lose weight. It's not about that. It's just a recognition. This happens. We're also judged based on our externals. Ten years. So here's my ten-year story. When we were first starting, we had a conference called a Kingdom Conference or Kingdom Expansion Conference at Riverstone. And we brought over a guru, a church planting guru, who was going to help us. He was going to motivate us. He was going to educate us. He was going to kind of help uh, lay a a course for us to be able to plant a church. And I had a little track, and I talked some about Stonebridge, what I knew at at that time. And and then we had a, a lunch. With this guy, and he was, he has a pastor who had planted churches. He was the head of church planting in the southeast for his uh, denomination. And we had a lunch with him, um, with me and a couple of guys off of our leadership team and with the staff and the elders and their spouses from Riverstone. And he was going to kind of lay out a roadmap for us. And after about 30 or 45 minutes of talking to me, he said, time out. And he said, don't let David Eldridge plant a church. He's like, he's not, he's going to fail. Don't let him do it. He doesn't have the passion to do this. He's probably a great associate. He will not make it as a church planter. And I was embarrassed, obviously. And I was also devastated in some ways. It took me a while, several months, to kind of work through all of that. What this guy had done is he judged me based on externals. If there's a profile for a church planter, I'm not it. I'm not. They're way more outgoing than me. They're way more charismatic than me. They like people a lot more than I do. There's tons of things about me that don't fit, and I knew that. I knew that. Like, that was a little voice in the back of my head. I knew I didn't fit the profile. If I had gotten assessed by most organizations, they wouldn't have said yes. But because this was a relational network and Tom Tanner had known me for so long, he did. But this guy, he didn't know that. All he knew was 30 minutes of talking to me. He's like, this guy doesn't have any passion. There's nothing, there's no spark. It's not, it's not going to go anywhere. You're setting him up for, fa- for failure, and if he's your first one, you're never going to launch another. You need to recognize you're going to be judged based on externals. And what's important in that moment, and I'm not necessarily his judgment of my externals was correct. 100, he was right based on what he saw. What he didn't know, and he just didn't have enough time, was he didn't know anything about my calling or my identity. And for y'all, it's the same. That's why it's so important for you to be well-grounded in who you are in Jesus. That's why it's so important for you to have a clear sense of what God is calling you into. It may very well be that you're a misfit. I mean that literally. You're a misfit for what God is calling you to. You don't fit the profile. You don't fit the mold. You're too old or too young or too quiet or too loud or whatever those things are. But it calling trumps the mold. But you have to be convinced if you're not when you're judged, because most likely if that's you, you're like me. And, you know, in the back of your mind, I don't fit. I don't 
entrepreneurs are younger than me or entrepreneurs have more capital than I have or whatever your thing is, whatever God's calling you to, there's, there's probably a picture for what a stay-at-home mom looks like or a working mom looks like or someone who launches a ministry looks like or an evangelist looks like. There's a picture or a missionary. There are pictures for that. And when you're right before you fall asleep at night, you may realize, I don't fit the picture. I hope they don't find me out. But are you convinced of your calling? And if you are, that trumps. If you're not, at some point, someone's going to judge you based on your externals because that's what people do. It's not even a, it's not a criticism of them. It's just a statement of fact. It's reality. And when that happens, is that going to throw you off? Or are you so convinced of your calling? Are you so convinced of what the Lord has said to you as a son or a daughter that you'll continue to move forward? Last thing, God looks at the heart. We look at outsides. God doesn't. He looks at the heart. He looks at the core of who we are. The seed of our mind and our will and our emotions. And if you're like me, you're thinking that's not necessarily great. He sees all of the unspoken thoughts. He sees all of the unacted upon desires. He sees all of the things that we wish would happen to other people or even in our own life. He judges us based on all of those things. He looks at the heart. He's not fooled. We can wear masks. God sees through all of them. Thankfully, Ezekiel 36, God gives us a new heart. Thankfully. He takes from us a heart of stone, a heart that's resistant to him. And he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive to him. What are you going to do with it? Remember 1 Samuel 10, 9, Saul got a new heart. He didn't do anything with it. He didn't cultivate trust in the Lord. This new heart that the Lord gave him wound up just like his old heart. Arrogant, selfish, fearful, resistant. But God gives each one of us who ask a new heart. The only condition is need. Do you recognize you need a new heart? And if you do, you ask, and he will take from you a heart that's resistant and stubborn towards him and give you a heart that's responsive and submissive to him. And then he says, what are you going to do with that new heart? Are you going to cultivate trust and dependence upon me? Or are you going to continue to resist and rebel? When you think about yourself, when you think about the things that come out of your mouth, when you think about the things that you do, particularly when you're under pressure, what comes out of you when you're squeezed? Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 15 and in Matthew 12, what's in us comes out of us, particularly when we're squeezed. We can fake it when things are going well. Everybody's great when they're on vacation. But what about when you're under the pressures of life? Do you fly off the handle? All the way down to your vocabulary, what comes out of your mouth? When you think about your activities, what are the things that you're doing? Jesus says evil starts in our heart. And then all of the things that we say and do are ultimately rooted in our heart. Again, it's Proverbs 4.23. We guard our heart. Why? Because it's the source. It's the source. All things from our life flow out of our heart. So if you don't like what you sound like, if you don't like the things that you're doing, the key is not to try to modify your behavior. It's to deal with your heart. It's to ask the Lord. This, it's not about me becoming, it's not about me uh, trying to control my temper. It's about saying, God, I need a patient and gracious heart 
That's what I need. That's what I need. It's not necessarily about me saying I've got to control where my eyes go if I have a struggle with lust. It's saying, God, I need a pure heart. That's what I need. You can put all the net nannies on your computer you want to. If your heart's wicked, you're going to get around it. You will. And when your heart becomes pure, you won't need them. You won't need them. Those things won't be in there. What do you think about when, when, when what comes out? Are you, are you okay with that? When you get small things cut off in traffic, big things, you didn't get the promotion that you thought you were due. Things that are devastating, a sudden death in your family. What comes out of you when you're under pressure? We're all going to be put under pressure. That's the word tribulation in the New Testament. It means squeezing, pressure. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? What does it look like? Love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control or other things. If it's the other things, again, it's not about behavior modification. Jesus is not trying to make bad people good. It's about a new heart. He's trying to make dead people alive. God looks at the heart. And in one sense, that can be scary for us. We're naked before him. He sees the core of who we are behind every mask and pretense. And that's also great news for us because he gives us a new heart. He's not grading our performance. He's looking inside. Is this a heart that's mine? As, you, as we get into David's life, you'll recognize, at least chronicled here, we've seen Saul blow it twice. We're going to see David blow it way more than twice and in way more significant ways. And yet he's a man after God's own heart. What's the difference? Responsiveness to the Lord. How about you this morning? Are you in a spot to respond to him? Let's pray. Bo's going to come up and he's going to sing a song and I don't want you to sing it. I just want you to stay in your seat. And I want you to just... Not beating yourself up, but just ask the Lord. It's a prayer from Psalm 139. Search my heart. Search it. Let me know. Is there anything offensive to you in my heart? If you're a Christian, God has given you a new heart. There may be places, though, where you're beginning to resist or rebel. Almost like getting a callus on a part of your heart. You just want to ask him to renew that. It may be around a particular relationship or circumstance. If you're wondering where to start, I would start with the places where you feel uh, anxious and stressed. If you've never said yes to Jesus, could this morning be the morning where you say, I need a new heart. I recognize I'm dead in my own sins. I can't do better. I need to do different. And the only way to do different is to get a new heart. Open yourself up to the Spirit of God. I'll come back up after the song and direct us into ministry. And again, I don't, I don't want you to beat yourself up at all. I just want you to ask, pray that simple prayer. God, search me this morning.
Show me my own heart. Are there any ways in my heart that are offensive to you that I need to address? Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us now. And I pray that you give us ears to hear what you're saying. I pray particularly for people who tend to wear themselves out. They wouldn't hear the roar of the enemy's voice. They'd hear the whisper of yours uh, during these next few minutes. In your name.